Hey, welcome back to Dad Conversations, where we spotlight successful, interesting, and normal people who happen to be dads. As usual, we'll learn about their area of expertise and then get to know a little about their life story and approach to parenting. Today, I spoke to Jonathan Kay from Quillette. Jonathan is the Canadian editor of Quillette, which is a platform for free thought that you may find is very different from other outlets covering current events. It's one of my favorite sites on the internet. The articles I've read over the last couple years have been grounded in reason, common sense, and data. Jonathan shares some background on Quillette, then touches on some of the largest trends of the last few years, such as cancel culture and political correctness. He then shares a little about his childhood, career, hobbies, family life, and his approach to parenting three beautiful girls. He's a good guy that I am very glad I spoke to. Enjoy. Jonathan, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me on. So you're the Canadian editor of Quillette, which is one of my favorite sites on the internet. And I've heard Quillette described as the place where free thought lives and also as a platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Uh, I would say I find that description to be accurate. And I would add to that and say that it's a site with intelligent and rigorous analysis on a variety of topics and current events and it's neither like left wing or right wing but it's pro logic and facts um so that, that that'd be my take anyway like how do you go about describing quillette to other people it's become impossible to use political labels to describe media these days because i mean i'm 50 51 years old and the sort of stuff that used to be described as liberal doesn't seem liberal, the sort of stuff that's conservative doesn't seem conservative, especially if you look at subjects like uh, the war over gender. Um, you know, I see a lot of gay and lesbian writers who just a few years ago would have been seen as liberal, but now now they're denounced as, as conservative because they don't toe the line on um, certain aspects of gender ideology. Uh, certain, you know, <laughs> issue of racial segregation, uh, it used to be just be racial bigots who were in favor of segregation. Now on campuses, you see a lot of progressives who want to force everyone to stay in their lane on racial issues. So I have given up uh, using <laughs> a, a traditional political typology to describe any publication, including my own. It is challenging for sure. So uh, I guess Quillette's a, a platform for free thought, you know, simple, simple way to, uh, to put it out there, but I always find it intelligent and, and, uh, very interesting. It's refreshing, honestly, to be able to read about some of the topics, the way that you guys put it together. Yeah, we try. Um, and it's, <laughs> we have to be modest about this sort of thing because we live in an era when just saying common sense, some people say, oh, that's courageous. But you're saying, in many cases, you're saying things that most people believe. And uh, again, when it comes to sex or gender or, uh, you know, criticizing social justice initiatives that go overboard or, or criticizing certain aspects of populist conservatism, a lot of what we're saying is just common sense. And it, it disturbs me that we live in an era when saying common sense 
at least in some subcultures, counts as rare or courageous or unusual. It shouldn't be like that. Um, and hmm. to be honest, you know, Quillette isn't alone. I think in the last year or two, especially, you have more media that have been joining. That some some cases they've just started up, uh, just a few people in some cases, but they've attracted a lot of attention because there is a hunger out there for people who say common sense uh, in violation of the taboos that are sometimes imposed on us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I. Could you tell us a little about Quillette? Like, when did it start and and why has it taken off so well? Yeah, so <laughs> I think of Quillette as new, and it is pretty new, but <laughs> we just published a very young writer. I think he's 20 years old, and I was looking at his Twitter feed, and he said, I'm so honored to be published in Quillette. I've loved it since high school. So, <laughs> and it made me feel so weird because, like, and it's like, oh, yeah, Quillette has been around for five years now. I mean, I think of it as sort of very new, you know, starting up yesterday. I've been with right. it for, I guess, three years. It was around for two years before that. It was the, the brainchild of uh, my boss, a brilliant woman named Claire Lehman, who lives in Australia. And she started up with uh, also a brilliant guy. His name is Jamie Palmer, who lives in London in the UK. And they just started it on a shoestring for much of the reasons that I've been describing. They just they didn't see a lot out there that was showcasing common sense, especially in, a, in any kind of intellectual way. And both of them, I think, were disheartened by extremism on both sides. And it's not much of an exaggeration to say Claire kind of started it with, you know, bouncing a, ba a baby child on her knee. She was at home. She had just... Um, become exasperated with academia. She'd been pursuing a master's degree in psychology, if I remember correctly. And just as I had become exasperated with some of the uh, elements of the literary scene here in Canada, in magazine journalism. And Bolette gets a lot of people in flux. Um, people who have become exasperated with academia or activism or the arts or literature. Uh, we published a woman named Libby Evans, who was in the sort of ultra progressive theatrical scene in New York City, of all places. And she was just she she was fed up. She said, this is ridiculous. Like, we can't no one can say what they think. And she became a writer for us. Um, so it, it tends to be a place for people in ideological flux is, is what I say. Uh, you know, I think there are a lot of places that say, oh, we don't believe in labels. I think Quillette is one of the places that really does resist labels. Uh, and again, it's because of the kind of people it attracts. They often are in flux. That's interesting. I want to talk a little about some of your, your favorite articles uh, or topics that you've covered. And maybe I'll start with some of mine. I'll say I, I loved uh, reading about the, the bloody harvest in China, reading about the refugee situation in Sweden, um, hearing about um, lots of topics related to race from Coleman Hughes and uh, content that I never get elsewhere in the media uh, that I've been exposed to through Quillette. Could you tell me a little about some of your favorite sort of articles or topics that you've worked on or, or contributed or um, edited? Sure. So yeah, Coleman Hughes, uh, a great American writer. He's based in New York. Um, I think he's at, uh, affiliated with the Manhattan Institute now, if memory serves. And some of the articles from Sweden were by and either authored by or edited by Paulina Nuding, who uh, worked for us for a while 
She now has gone on to edit another publication, but she still contributes to us. Um, and often we get writers who are really familiar with the situation in their backyard and use Quillette as a way to discuss these issues for a wider audience. Because I happen to be Canadian, I have a particular interest in Canadian issues. And some of, I'm glad to say that some of our most popular articles have been about Canadian subjects, despite the fact that Canada is, by my own admission, usually kind of a boring country. But <laughs> some of the literary scandals we've had have really made for epic viral articles for Quillette. And in part, it's because Canada is a small enough country that it just can shovel stuff under the carpet. Um, our our highbrow or high concept media uh, is largely based in two or three big cities, and there's a lot of you know as with any subculture, there's a lot of uh, sort of unstated agreements about the sort of things you write about, the sort of things you don't, and as a result, there are stories that were just completely ignored by the Canadian media, and we were able to break those stories. Um, <clears throat> I think my favorite article of all time that we published is uh, a guy named Brad Cran, who wrote about the false accusations and railroading of a literary scholar named Stephen Galloway, who was suspended and then fired from the University of British Columbia following accusations that we now know are false uh, in regard to um, sexual assault and sexual harassment. Uh, the media wouldn't really touch that story except from the Me Too side of things. So there were some reporters who wrote in a somewhat honest way about it, but Brad Cran wrote this epic 11,000 word article about it two years ago, which just broke the story wide open. And in, he broke it in a way that like no one could ignore the truth of it anymore. It was a real sort of Emile Zola, Jacques moment. It was fantastic. And I think that's probably my favorite probably my favorite story we've ever run. It's exactly the kind of story that I wanted to run uh, when I joined Quillette. And it helped break the monopoly in Canada. And Quillette in general, I think has helped break the monopoly in Canada on, as I said, just a small number of voices implicitly agreeing. Look, I don't, it's not a conspiracy or anything like that, but it's just sort of, you know, as with any group of people within any kind of industry, there's, certain tacit understandings and in journalism, there are certain stories they, they wouldn't touch. And I, it's really been a privilege to work with Quillette to, to help break that unhealthy implicit understanding about stories that wouldn't get coverage. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you, yeah, you mentioned that was uh, how many thousand word that's, that's uh... yeah, it was an 11,000 <laughs> word article. And that's one of the great things about Quillette is that, um, we just published, I think, like a 40,000 word, or we divided it into four, but there's a guy, yeah, I mean, that's, it's a short book, basically. That was by a guy named uh, Philippe Lemoyne. Uh, it was edited by my colleague, Jamie Palmer, and that was about China and COVID-19. And it was, it was great. It actually, it was such an epic work, and we knew going in that it wouldn't generate, like, it wouldn't go viral in the same way of some stories, because the it didn't like make bombshell accusations against China. And at the same time, it didn't whitewash China's involvement in, in the creation of COVID-19 or being the site of the, the, uh, the creation of, of COVID-19. Right. It, it gave like a very measured, um, scientifically defensible and detailed 
nuanced description of, of the issue. And as a result, you know, pieces like that, they're not going to go viral because it's not like Fox News type stuff. It, right. Um, but it's so valuable. And, and I'm really I, I'm very proud we publish journalism like that. For sure. Yeah, it's it's um, it's a good point. It's not really something that's going to go viral, but it's a place where people who are interested in like because it didn't land didn't land on one side or the other of the culture war. Right. So, mm. you know, the pieces, you know, are going to go viral are the ones that that one side or the other is, is going to weaponize. Right. Mm. Uh, but there's some stories that they don't fall into that category and, you know, you're not going to get a, a million hits, uh, but you publish them anyway because they're good journalism and, and it's, it's it's good to get that information out there. Exactly. Yeah. Your your readers love it and, and keep coming back for that type of content. Um, last year you gave a talk, a Ted talk that was titled political correctness works for no one. Uh, for those who haven't seen the talk, can you give us a brief overview of your message there? So, yeah, that was a TEDx talk I gave in, in Toronto and I was delivering it to a largely university audience. And whenever I, I do public speaking, I always try and be knowledgeable of who I'm speaking to because I hate preaching to the converted. And I also hate, on the other hand, using language or arguments that I know won't resonate with an audience. Um, and because I knew I'd be speaking to a largely college audience, I wanted to make arguments, which I happen to believe in, about speech codes and mobbing and cancel culture. I don't think I use the term cancel culture because this was a year or two ago and the term wasn't in wide circulation. And I was talking about how it is mostly progressives and mostly disadvantaged people who suffer most from political correctness. That's an old fashioned term, but call it cancel culture. And I told them, I said, look, you know, people have tried to cancel me because sometimes my views are heterodox. But I said, you know, I'm lucky because I'm a fairly privileged middle aged guy with connections in the industry and you can't cancel me. You know, I'm a work for Quillette, I'm a ghostwriter, I have lots of friends in journalism. And uh, the people who do get canceled are people half my age, without my money, without my connections. They're the ones who have to toe the line. And if progressivism is about helping people who are who lack privilege, well, you're hurting people who lack resources. You're hurting people who are just getting their start, either, especially academia. You know, academia, if you're on a tenure track run, in the liberal arts, you can't say anything on social media that's in any way heterodox because that's going to be, you know, five years from now, that's going to be in front of a search committee right? Um, or a tenure committee. And those are the people who you did. It doesn't, doesn't hurt Jordan Peterson. Like, you know, Jordan Peterson has tenure and uh, University of Toronto hasn't fired Jordan Peterson. He's had all sorts of other adventures and misadventures, but, um, you know, the fight against cancel culture has made Jordan Peterson a really rich guy. Um, and I gave examples of this. Uh, I'll actually, I'll, you know, I didn't give this example in my speech, but I'll give an, this example. There's an LGBT theater company here in Toronto called Buddies in Bad Times. And this, it's it's historic. It's, it's one of North America's first gay theaters. It's certainly, I think, Canada's first gay theater, certainly Toronto's. And it became embroiled in a controversy the last few months that just like tore the place apart. It's one of these crazy controversies where like the root of it was just like ridiculous. One woman was complaining that 
the theater company had extended a commercial contract to her ex who she claimed had been, it was another woman who had been in this relationship that she said was emotionally abusive. And one of them was a person of color. The whole thing was like such nonsense. In, like as compared to what we're used to, you know, people being accused of like true bigotry or like that. The place has, has torn itself apart. Uh, the, the head of the organization resigned. They essentially canceled months of their scheduling. They brought in all these consultants to uh, decontaminate the place from all the racism that's supposedly there. These are the most left-wing people in Toronto. Like, honestly, these are people who do a pronoun check and a land acknowledgement before they go to bed every night. I mean, it's absolutely the wokest people in the world. And, and they're tearing their lives and careers apart over this stuff. It has no effect on someone like me. I mean, I'm just sort of an observer, increasingly a bemused observer to this. Because more and more people in my world are disgusted with this kind of stuff. And there's a backlash against cancel culture. But in that yeah. world, wow. You know, if you're 20, you know, 20 or 30 something, uh, you know, set designer or actor or actress, or you have directorial um, ambitions, I mean, it isn't just getting fired from these little places. It's, you know, your your government grants. Or maybe you put food on the table by being an assistant prof in theater studies at the local college. You're going to lose that job if you tweet the wrong thing. Those are the people who are getting hammered by cancel culture. Hmm. Crazy to think that a year ago, the term cancel culture wasn't even generally understood. <laughs> like you uh, said, it wasn't in circulation. Like that, and, but, but yeah, yeah. But just how far it's come in the last year, you know? It goes by many names. And... I try and remind people that, you know, the conservatives do cancel culture when it suits them. I'm old enough to remember the moral majority uh, in the 80s when when people were, you know, companies were getting blacklisted if they didn't exhibit family values. Uh, you know, conservatives wield cancel culture when it suits them. Basically, cancel culture, however you want to call it, it's whoever is winning the culture war is going to use cancel culture. Because as soon as people think they have the advantage in the culture war, they, they try and lock in that advantage by shutting everyone else up. Yeah. You, you can always tell who's winning the culture war based on who's trying to shut everybody else up. And, you know, back in the 80s under Ronald Reagan, it was it was conservatives. But now it's not any longer. Now it's progressives. And just like the conservatives tried to burn, you know, they tried to ban flag burning because, you know, they were perfectly fine with limiting free speech when it came to uh, shafting liberals. But now the shoe's on the other foot. And so... It's uh, so I, I'm always careful when people say, oh, liberals, this liberals, that. I say it's not liberal. This is human nature. You know, right now it's progressives in this field who are trying to shut everybody up. But historically, it's both sides. Sure. Yeah. So I was 2020 has been a crazy year. We talked a lot about cancel culture. Uh, you're deeply dialed into what's going on, uh, both in Canada and around the world. What which do are you most concerned about and is there something you wish maybe the average person was was tracking a little more closely well i mean a, a huge problem is that these issues we have with with symbolic issues like hashtag issues you know cultural appropriation and cancel culture and stuff they are distracting people on the left and the right from from really big issues that you know, truly can influence the future of mankind. And I'm not just talking about like global warming and stuff. 
um, and maybe more obscure issues like antibiotic resistant bacteria, which I think is a big issue. Uh, but also, you know, things like income inequality. Uh, the you know, middle class Americans have not had a real pay increase on average in something like four decades. And history shows that when people can no longer aspire to upward mobility, when they, when they lose their focus on improving their lives, when they don't think they have money to buy a house or start a family, bad things happen because it's, it's the aspirational quality of our life that, that brings a sense of purpose and discipline and maturity to us. Uh, and once those dreams fall away, they start to channel their energy in all kinds of crazy ways. A lot of these Antifa protesters you see in places like Seattle and Portland, or Antifa sympathetic, I'm not sure if we're allowed to call them Antifa anymore. The New York Times was lecturing us about how Antifa doesn't exist. Yeah, you'll probably get canceled if you uh, call them Antifa. <laughs> yeah, so what used to be called Antifa, you know, a lot of them actually say on their social media pages that they're Antifa, but I mean, a lot of these people they're actually like older people, like they're, they're, they're adults and not just 19 year olds, you know, some a remarkable number of them are, are in their thirties or even sometimes, sometimes even older. And you ask yourself, like, you know, everyone does stupid stuff when they're 17 or 18, but the fact that these are older people and they think that it isn't a big risk in their life, like for them to get criminal records or to be on, you know, pictures of them on social media for bashing a cop in the head or something. Like, there's something wrong with a society where this is happening because these these people plainly don't think they have any kind of future, uh, or they wouldn't be doing this stuff. Like, there is this strongly nihilistic sense of what they're doing, and I don't want to make this into a root causes arguments. Like, oh well, who can blame these people? Let's blame society. I mean, a lot of these people are doing profoundly violent, antisocial, horrible things, and many of them, if they've committed crimes, should go to jail. But it isn't normal that this many people get radicalized in this way and think that they have so little to lose. Uh, and I think the conservative response to all this is for conservatives to harden their hearts to it. But a lot of it, you know, I'm, I'm sort of a liberal when it comes to some of this stuff, is America needs a welfare state. Like it, it needs a place where where people can afford housing, uh, and not every, you know you have millions and millions of Americans relying on bread banks and stuff. Um, you know, I'm not a socialist by any means, but when a critical mass of people lose faith in the idea that hard work gets them a middle class life, some really crap things happen on the right and left side of the political spectrum. And one of the reasons Canada is is a much less radicalized place is we have a thicker social safety net. Now, by the way, this doesn't always equate like that. If you look at some of the countries in Scandinavia have very thick social safety nets and some of their inner cities have some really bad problems. So it isn't a panacea, but I think on the left and right in the United States, both sides are drawing the wrong lessons. You've got progressives who are so obsessed with race and gender that they've just completely lost track of, of class and income and, you know, these are these are the traditional themes of, of Marxism and socialism, and, and they've been forgotten. Um, and then on the right, you have populist conservatives who whose response to this is just to double down on slogans about capitalism and the underclass. Right. And that's not helpful either. So that 
from a big picture perspective, it's that both sides have been radicalized in a way that pushes them away from the real solutions that America needs. That's what I, I mean, I'm, I'm a nobody, right? But I, I just like, I like listening to people who sound like they understand what's going on and are speaking intelligently and, and discussing the facts and not painting the other side as an enemy who is out to get you. But like, hey, this person believes this way probably because of X, Y, Z. And, you know, we agree with the, the uh, long term goal of this, but we would go about it a different way. You know, like I like intelligent, thoughtful discussions. And it's like you see none of that nowadays. But um, well, like so it takes social justice, you know. Social justice has become this term of abuse among conservatives, and I get it, right? Because people are now making really extreme and stupid suggestions in the name of social justice. Like they, you know, so social justice demands that we do X, Y, and Z, and often X, Y, and Z are kind of dumb. But we all we all want social justice. Like if you if you you know step back from the last couple of years of the way that term has been completely abused, like. It's kind of like a bad marriage where you, you try and remember, you know, what was it that brought us together? Like, what were the things we used to agree on? And and the, the same is true of, of politics. Like, there are things that Americans agree with, and social justice is one of them. Unfortunately, because of the way the media works and the way people tribalize, these things become dirty words. But, you know, most of the conservatives I know, they want social justice. They, they just... <laughs> they, Absolutely. They they just don't believe it should be advanced in in such a dogmatic way as you see uh, on on the liberal side of the political spectrum. Yeah. So I'll give you one one more question on your uh, area of expertise, and then we'll want to get into your life story and and a little about your approach to parenting. So, um, so so much of the as we've been discussing so much of this you know news industry media it's turned into just entertainment and drama and good guys versus bad guys that type of storytelling um i personally you know worry for people who feel like very confident that they're getting unbiased news when in reality they're consuming entertainment that's yeah. designed to have them you know come back for the latest viral story to get them fired up like where where do you like to go to get the truth in, in addition to reading or or not necessarily just truth but let's say thoughtful rigorous analysis uh in addition to quillette like where do you go to uh tap into more info so i gotta say um i do have favorite publications i think tablet uh, which is an american publication it's known i guess as, as a jewish publication but increasingly the stories that i see there often aren't necessarily related to Judaism. That's a great publication. Uh, I'm I'm a print subscriber to the New York Times. You know, I know it's fashionable among um, culture warriors on both sides to attack the New York Times, but there's a lot of stuff in the New York Times that I really like. Their international reporting is often very good. Um, you know, their obituary section is fantastic. People die I've, I've never heard of, and they've got these fantastic 2,000-word obituaries. Business news is good. Uh, you know, their commentary and their weekend review section has just become a garbage pit, and I, I don't really read that. But it's, it's a shame. Like, people will become so enraged about this or that New York Times article that they forget that 80 or 90% of the, the newspaper is still pretty good. Um, so I, I still read that. I'm like a lot of people, though, is a lot of my reading is based on articles I see in social media. So... I will spend my time reading articles that from publications that I didn't even know existed. 
you know, it could be like an English language publication in India or Australia or Scandinavia. Um, because what's happened for a lot of us is our peers have become our de facto curators for immediate experience. Now, this has a silo effect, right? Because if you have all conservative friends and they're posting conservative articles, then you're reading 100% conservative stuff. So I try on Twitter, at least I try and follow people who are from a mix of different uh, political backgrounds. Um, but this is one of the reasons, you know, people say, oh, I distrust the media. I distrust editors. I, you know, I want an unfiltered look at the world. And I'm like, well, you might want to rethink that because your peers are your editors. You're, they're the ones curating your experience. If you're reading stuff you read off social media, one of your friends typically made an, a decision to post that. So it's not as if you're just getting a randomized sample and stuff that's on the web. Um, and and the stuff I get on Facebook tends to be different because it's from my family and friends. On Twitter, it's mostly like culture warriors. Um, but in terms of print publications, the ones that I like most, so it's New York Times, even though I roll my eyes at a lot of it, the New York Review of Books is an amazing publication, and it's surprisingly unwoke, despite what you may think, that it's like this very black turtleneck New York City literary publication, that it's going to be woker than woke. It's actually really good. Um, it's it's Right now, it's the only magazine that I subscribe to. I used to subscribe to The New Yorker, and there's some New Yorker writers I love, like Rachel Aviv, and, but there was just... Too much of it was just, it, you know, it's the same old progressive stuff, and I, I got bored of it. Uh, the New York Review of Books is fantastic. Uh, I really like it. That's that's that and Tablet. Aside from Quillette, those are <laughs> my own publication. Those are the two that I really admire most. I think. Cool. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. So let's get to know you a little bit. Tell me a little about where you grew up, what type of kid you were, and what you were interested in. I was a really bad kid. I was, uh, I had, I think I'd be, these days I'd be diagnosed with um, hyperactive uh, ADHD. I was a troublemaker and an attention seeker and a class disruptor, and they didn't know what to do with me. Um, I, it was, I only got my act together, I'd say around grade 10 or 11, and a lot of people, uh, did not give up on me, I think. And I, I, by the way, I wasn't breaking windows or anything like that. That was never my thing. It was never, I never skipped school or anything like that. It was, I wasn't into drugs. It was, I was just, um, you know, I was just a sassy, I would say, you know, selfish kid when it came to, uh, it's, it's hard to say what's going on because we're such different people when we grow up. But yeah. um, I mean, I made life tough for my teachers and my my parents. Uh, and I like to think of, um, you know, one of the nice things is as I got older, I got invited back to the school to give speeches. And just a couple of weeks ago, they had me on one of their webinars to talk about COVID to the students. And it was nice because so many of my old teachers are still there at the school that it was like, it was nice to show them that I didn't end up. Uh... No way. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's a good feeling. Um, and so this was in Montreal. And I went to Jewish school at first where I didn't where I failed to learn Hebrew. Then I went to non-Hebrew school where I failed to learn French. Then I went to university, and I also failed to learn Latin. Then I went to university where I failed to learn Japanese. 
I've always, I'm a complete failure at learning second language. And I think it's because I've always been so obsessed with, with English and writing. And, you know, this, this one language seems to be the only one I'm, I'll, I will ever be half decent at. Hmm. Um, yeah, I had asthma, so I wasn't really into sports. But then I got into sports when I was older. And then I studied engineering at McGill University in, in Montreal. Uh, loved math, but wasn't good at the professional aspects of engineering. And then I went to law school in the States and was a tax lawyer and found that incredibly boring. And then I fell ass backwards into writing, which I'd always loved. But uh, Conrad Black started up a newspaper in Canada called the National Post in 1998. And I got a, an opportunity to be on the editorial board of that. And that was 22 years ago. And that's been my writing, editing, and I guess now podcasting, ghostwriting, all that stuff. It's, that's now been my career for the last uh, two decades. Wow. So they just knew you were a good writer and said, hey, do you want to come be an, an editor here? Uh, it was a little... To some extent, I, I had spent the previous year sending out like freelance articles to various publications, including magazines in Canada and stuff. And the guy who's picked to edit the National Post as founding editor had been on the receiving end of a bunch of my pitches and had even asked me to come to Toronto for sort of an informal interview to see if I was interested in writing for him. The magazine no longer exists. It was a, matter, a magazine called Saturday Night. And um, so he knew my name. Also, those were the days when Canadians were like really impressed with American Ivy League credentials because I went, I had, because I've always been good at standardized tests, I went, so I went to the law school at Yale and Canadians have just, I mean, I could have gone to Yale, I don't know, like dog catcher school or whatever. And people, <laughs> people, people in Canada would have been impressed by that. So, um, and I think that's still somewhat the case. Um, and, and that, that's what got me through the front door of Canadian journalism. Uh, even though the stuff that I was writing had nothing to do with American law, oh. 90% of the time it was just Canadians, at least at the time, maybe less so now, were impressed by that kind of credential. That's interesting. Yeah, credentials can make a difference. Yeah. So, so tell me a little about your father or father figures, uh, and what's one thing that uh, he really nailed as a father? Yeah, my father. It's interesting. My father was a Russian immigrant, or is a Russian immigrant, and it's interesting because he was always very funny and good with words. But English was not his first language. He spoke Russian in his household as a kid, although he didn't grow up in Russia. What happened was his own parents had fled the, the aftermath of the Russian Revolution. Uh, they're Jewish. And, and for a variety of other, I mean, lots of people were fleeing. And they ended up in a small Russian emigre community. Actually, it wasn't that small. It was a Russian emigre community in, in and around Harbin, China. Uh, where um, the lang you know, spoken language was was Russian because there were so many Russians there. And then eventually around World War II, there were all kinds of population exchanges. And my, my dad and his parents ended up in Canada, in Montreal. And he was always good with math. He was always a good athlete. He taught me. He always encouraged me in those things. He played chess with me. And he, you know, he was, he was a completely fluent English speaker. But my mother was an English teacher and came from a family that was like very sharp witted and performative and funny and like more stereotypically Jewish 
when it came to wordplay and stuff. And it always left my father a little confused because if you're not a native English speaker, it's hard to keep up with that kind of um, like fast paced uh, verbal humor. And so the writing, and I'd say my attitude to writing and my analytical proclivities, that, that came from my mom. But my mom is fairly hopeless when it comes to like engineering and science and math. I mean, she's not, she's not dumb, but in those areas, it's not her thing. It's yeah. not her thing. It's not her passion, right? Like she's 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 passionate about words. She's a columnist and she's very smart. She's written books. But my dad is the one who always uh, encouraged my interest in like physics and chemistry, and uh, and he had been an engineer. In fact, he had been a metallurgical engineer. So it's weird when it came time to pick an academic discipline. I just unconsciously, well, not I mean it was conscious, but. I became a metallurgical engineer because my dad was a metallurgical engineer. And just as my dad had escaped engineering and got an MBA and became like a business guy, I also, I didn't last long in engineering either. And I ended up uh, becoming a writer. But in terms of getting the foundational elements out of university, um, I guess I, I admired the kind of mind my dad has had and still has. And, uh, and and pursued engineering as well, even though like, you know, I was 18 or 19 at the time, none of this was explicit in my mind. It was just, I had this vague sense that I guess I wanted to be like my dad. So I did that. But again, you're, at that age, you have so little self-awareness. So I, I don't even think I, I realized what I was doing. I just, I just, I got, and many of the teachers at McGill in metallurgical engineering is a very small faculty had taught my dad and remembered my dad. Wow. Yeah, it was really cool. But and, and, the, and so sorry, as I say this, it's the, the chair of our department, guy named um, Bill Williams, who passed away a few years ago. He, he he lived across the street from us on Metcalf Avenue in Montreal, and remembered my dad and, and the whole thing. It was such a um, when I tell these stories, Montreal sounds like a small town, and I guess the Anglo community there is a kind of small town. But it was uh, it's a great place to grow up. That's awesome. Yeah, it was cool. So tell me about your hobbies and why you like them. So that's a really interesting question. Um, one thing about hobbies is they always look like work to other people. So, you know, when I see people doing needlecraft or macrame or something, I'm like, wow, that's, you know, you're... It's like you're working in some sweatshop in, in India or something, you know, like yeah. <laughs> the opposite of refreshing. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, they're they're 14 year olds being paid 30 cents an hour to do what you're doing. Like, you know, how is that fun? Uh, but to them, what I do is also looks tedious. So I'm into board gaming, but the kind of board games I play tend to be very like um, rules, dense, strategic often not always but often military themes like uh, axis and allies well that so that axis and allies is often cited because it's such a foundational game in you know the old avalon hill board gaming days um i would say the the board gaming tradition that emerged from games like axis and allies those are the kind of games maybe more modern games but those are the kind of games i, I play a lot 
are the more are the modern games more rules dense than Axis and Allies? Because that was like that 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 was like uh, ten levels deeper than than Risk. My brother in law started showing me Axis and Allies, and I hated it for like the first two hours. But then, you know, twelve hours in, I was like addicted, and yeah. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. been cool. But what is that to me? That's the that's as high as it gets as far as complexity and time commitment. But what what are the games you're into like relative to Axis and Allies? So there's a game from that era. Uh, or maybe a little, just slightly past that era, called uh, Squad Leader, or it's known as Advanced Squad Leader now, um, that still has a fairly vibrant uh, subculture. And so I travel, at least before COVID, I traveled around the world playing in Squad Leader tournaments, and I still do. I still plan to. Uh, In fact, days before the COVID-19 lockdown in Canada, I was in Denmark at the Scandinavian Squad Leader tournament. And Squad Leader is a game that it became popular in the 1980s around the time maybe just after the time that axis and allies took off these days i also play a lot of what are now called euro games uh, those are games that term didn't exist till about maybe 15 20 years ago that's like games in the mold of settlers of Catan or power grid or uh, a ticket to ride they're sort of like um, yeah. thematically rich strategy games that don't have a military theme. Um, I, uh, I, I actually I co-wrote a book about board games, and I talked about how these Euro games were were championed in Germany, in particular, because there were people there who really wanted to play sophisticated board games. But the only board games that were sophisticated that were available were military games. And for obvious historical reasons, the Germans aren't too keen on, on that kind of theme. No wonder they keep starting all these wars. Well, now they're just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> creating games, which is, you know, a much better, <laughs> yeah, yeah. better pursuit. Uh, and, and yeah. now that category is just called Euro games. And so, uh, in fact, just last night was games night for me. And I played a rail building game called uh, 1830 robber barons it's it's a where you you take the role of a rail investor from the early 19th century sort of the dawn of the, the rail era and you're investing in different companies and creating rail networks all over northeastern united states it's a really fun game it's, mm. but if you look at the rule book you know it's pretty thick and it's a very technical game and any just the same way i look at needle needlecraft and i say oh that looks so boring most people, including a lot of gamers, will look at that and say, God, you know, you're going to spend like a week learning how to play a game that that looks like work, not fun. But that's what I do for fun is I play these these games and it's uh, that's that's my main hobby. Cool. Yeah. So if you like to give away books as gifts, then tell me about the book that you've given away most. And uh, if you're not a book gift giver, then just tell me about maybe one or two books that have greatly influenced your life. I'd say the book that I've given away most is uh, John John Kennedy Tool's Confederacy of Dunces. It's a novel, and I'm, I don't think I've read a novel for the last 15 years, but when I was reading novels, that novel, I think I read it four times, and I'm not somebody who rereads books. Like, you know, you you hear people say, oh, yeah, you know, I... I read, uh, I read uh, you know, such and such a book. You know, typically it's like Walt Whitman or 
uh, Kundera or something like that. And they say, oh, yeah, I've read it 17 times. Or, or they'll say, I, I, I read it every year. And I've never been one of those people except this book. I remember reading it and thinking, it's kind of like with you and Axis and Allies, like the first 20 pages, I didn't get it. And then I was like, oh, my God, this is the greatest book ever. And I, but I gave it to people, but I gave it to people under very specific conditions. And I, I'm not proud of what I did. Cause what happens is when I was starting a new relationship with a woman, I would like give it to her and say, tell me what you think of this book. Um, in the same way that like a woman might say to a guy, Hey, do you like kids? And if the guy says, Oh no, like, you know, I, I, I hate kids or I hate puppies or that's like a warning sign that this isn't, you know, Maybe yeah. guy for the long term. But for me, if if a woman read that book and she didn't get it, then she probably wouldn't get me. Uh, so, although by the time I would give the book to the, a woman, I was usually like head over heels for her anyway. So she could come back and say she hated it and I probably wouldn't have cared. But that <laughs> book is one that I've I've probably given away that book more often than, than any other book. Interesting. And remind me, what was it about again? What's like the, the overall premise so, of it? Uh, so John Kennedy Tool, let's uh, T O O L E. It won it won the Pulitzer Prize posthumously. Actually, the, the author died very young, tragically. And it's about this. <laughs> the protagonist is uh, Ignatius Riley, is a medievalist. He's this guy who lives inside his own head and is extremely self-important and haughty and goes around uh, New Orleans. The, the book is very much sort of an, a demographic, well, it's like a satirical demographic Alice of New Orleans in, I wanna say like the late 50s, early 60s, I think. I may be off by five years or so. And, uh, you know, there's a Jewish character, um, there's, there's a black character, the main characters are, I think, these <laughs> these Catholics. Uh, his, his mom. Like, everyone is a stereotype. And in, in, right now, the book is unpublishable. But all the stereotypes offset each other. Like, everyone in the book is an unattractive dunce. And because everyone is, is, tra is treated equally scathingly, I think it it all balances out and it, it feels like an act of love. Hmm. It's just, but it's a brilliantly funny book. Like it's so good. And I think they've made movies of it, but I don't, it's, I don't, you could just tell reading it that the movie version of it wouldn't be any good. It's a, it's yeah. a great book. Every, everyone listening to this should read that book. Cool. Um, tell me about a failure or significant obstacle that you've encountered that ended up setting you up for later success? I think, uh, God, I'm going to pick a really banal example, but I, I had a very frustrating time at my last job. I was editor of a Canadian magazine and I was trying to steer it in a certain direction. And there were people in the magazine who didn't want it to go in that direction. And uh, I left in 2017 at a time. I don't think any of us were happy. Like everyone was, was frustrated. And at the time I felt like, I think I, I felt like I had been wronged. Like I was like, you know, you know, these people just don't get it. And 
they they want to publish all this boring stuff and um you know they need to grow a backbone and it's not like i i had a very high opinion of myself as i walked out the door um and if you had asked me at the time i would have said oh you know you know i from cancel culture didn't exist, but I probably would have seen myself as like, I'd been victimized by something like that. I, I now realize that what happened was, it ended up being a kind of blessing because the journalism I do at Quillette ended up being very much an antidote toward the kind of atmosphere I worked at, uh, worked in at that magazine. And had I not had that experience, I don't think I would have been having the blast that I'm having at Quillette. And I think maybe I would have been like more on the side of the cancel culture people. Like I would be trying to cancel other people because I wouldn't have seen and not like not to paint myself as a martyr. I don't, I don't think I actually got canceled that bad or anything like that. It was very mild compared to what other people get, but I was able to get a good look at the sort at the reasons that these kind of environments get created. Like the people I was working with, um, you know, they weren't they weren't bad people, and they themselves were under the gun so much by their peers and social media contacts. Like, and if they did one wrong move, they would get attacked, they'd get canceled, and I kind of like I feel bad for them, right? And a lot of them are still laboring under that, and working that environment. At the time, it felt terrible. I really didn't like it. Um, <laughs> and I think they would probably say the same, same thing about me. But in hindsight, it gave me such a good eyewitness view. I was embedded in this environment that helped me understand the culture war and helped me be a good editor and writer, I, I like to think, writing about this stuff. So at the time, it felt crap. Uh, in retrospect, it was probably one of the biggest assets I've had in my career. Interesting. It's funny how that that's a common theme that some of the biggest or um, most painful failures of the time turn into something, something positive in the long but you have to be, you have to be self-aware. Uh, and this, you see this in relationships, right? Or, you know, in parenting or something like that, where you keep making the same mistake over and over. And one thing I see as a parent is like, it's very hard to teach self-awareness because self-awareness is like a meta skill. And so there are certain kids, and I think I was one of them, who just kept getting into trouble in the same way over and over. But I didn't have the self-awareness to realize, like, oh, you're doing that again. Or you're, you're, you're reacting that way again or something like that. Whereas I see with my own girl, I have three girls, um, at least my eldest, you know, she, she, get, she stops herself and says, okay, I'm doing it. Why am I doing that? Why am I reacting that way? Why am I letting that person affect me? And, and it's very hard to teach that, but my God, that's probably the one thing. It's like the skill that allows you to get all the other skills because it's the skill that allows you to learn from mistakes. Hmm. That's awesome. Cool to see that in her already. Yeah, it is great. So if you don't mind, can we do one more question and then we'll jump to um, family? Yeah, of course. Yeah, okay. Sure. So um, what is an important truth uh, that you feel like very few people agree with you on? Oof. Um, <laughs> um, let me think about that. I, 
So here's a thing that I don't think is the truth, but I believe for the wrong time, longest time, and I never met a single person who who agreed with me. And <laughs> and I think I kept saying it because of that. I was contrarian. So during the height of the culture war over gay marriage, so I I now consider myself a strong supporter of gay marriage. It's it's, it's worked out. But mm-hmm. 15 years ago in Canada, when there was a fight about gay marriage, my main problem with gay marriage was that among the men I knew, they didn't really have the emotional maturity for marriage, except what happened was they were they would be civilized by a woman. So like, you know, they were like me, like you know, they'd eat like pigs and. They'd stay up to two in the morning playing video games and they'd sleep in and they didn't take care of themselves. And then they'd meet a woman and they'd they'd shape up and they'd go to a gym and they'd get a job and they'd move out of their parents' basement and they'd stop smoking weed. Like the woman would civilize. Okay? <laughs> yeah. Okay. And 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 that's obviously like a gross simplification of yeah and woman dynamic but it's just we're about to both get canceled now no i'm just kidding <laughs> no well you know it's not fair for the truth but i'm saying like obviously it's a gross conflict but i did i saw that just in a lot of and so i remember thinking i have no problem with lesbian marriages because they're both like you know i mean mature women but like the concept of two guys getting married it, it didn't like disgust me on any kind of physical level or anything like that it was always i was like i just looked at the men i knew and i was like I don't think these guys have what it takes, even two of them, especially two of them, to to get it together for like a lifetime of marriage. And so my position, which no one agreed with, was marriage should be a union between two individuals, at least one of whom was a woman. And gay marriage proponents thought I was just weird and bigoted because like I allowed, you know, I was supported yeah, marriage, yeah. but not gay marriage. And conservatives we're appalled. <laughs> like, so, so, you know, you're, you're okay with lesbian marriage. Like, yeah, I think that's great. And they, so literally like I, I, I ran this opinion by maybe a hundred people, not a single person ever agreed with me. Now, now, <laughs> that, now so, that sounds based on your stance. I can see why you'd yeah. be the only person. <laughs> yeah. No, no, it was, it was a totally, and it was, a to- <laughs> I used my, my wife, hated it because at dinner at dinner parties at the time it was a hot issue in Canada and people would discuss it and and like people would say so John what do you think and she'd be kicking under the table it's like no don't get your stupid theory yeah. and um <laughs> but then like as the years passed I, I I started to know a lot of men who got who got married to each other and what I saw was that the men who did get married were tended to be mature uh <laughs> far more mature than me and they took marriage very seriously and it's been a long time now. It's like uh, mar- marriage has been the law of the land in Canada, I think, since 2000, 2005. And I think the average marriage only lasts like 10 years. But, you know, there are people in Canada who've been married for almost 20 years now. And, you know, from what I can tell anecdotally, it's going strong. So I was wrong. Uh, but that, I, to my memory, that's the only time I ever had an opinion that no one else agreed with. Uh, yeah. And I only had it for a few years. Yeah, yeah. It shows you have a, a strong, strong feelings. You're willing to stand up for though. So um, yeah. you mentioned you have three daughters. Tell me a little about your family and maybe a favorite vacation you've taken. Sure. Uh, so yeah, three daughters, uh, 16, 14 and eight. Uh, they're great. I mean, we have 
female dog, and I just went on a vacation with them. Uh, one brought one friend and one brought three friends. So I think it was like 10 to 1 on a female to male ratio, wow. which didn't feel weird. I'm just like so used to it now. Um, and partially is, you know, my, my wife is a um, corporate lawyer. She's the in-house counsel for this big um, multinational uh, construction and cement company and it, one of the reasons I've been able to experiment professionally and take risks professionally is that she's a primary uh, wage earner and uh, even even if it were the case if I lost my income completely uh, we'd have to make some serious sacrifices financially but you know we'd still be able to pay the mortgage so I've had the privilege of uh, you know people sit like yeah. there been times where I've like taken a very strong stand professionally and risk my job, not at Quillette, but other publications. People are like, oh, you're so brave. It's like, well, it's easy to be brave when you have a wife who, right. you know, twice what you make. Uh, not everyone has that privilege. And so she's a very hard worker, great role model for the kids. Um, very hands-on mom though. It's like one of these moms who sleeps four hours a night. And, uh, uh, and the older the kids get, the more like they go to her for stuff, like on relationships and sort of health issues. Uh, part of it's stereotypical, like, you know, I'm the guy who like, I'll go snowboarding with my kids and I'll, I'm the guy who, if they say, hey, let's do the black diamond. I'm like, yeah, you know, let's do it. They're like, let's, let's push our boundaries and stuff. And th that is a stereotype of, of the dad as the boundary pusher. Um, or, you know, like my 16 year old, she wanted to get a driver's license and I was the one who, you know, I, I go driving with her and I encourage her to be confident. And I mean, I'm, I'm actually quite terrified and I have my hand on the handbrake at all times. But uh, I part of my role as a dad, I think, is, is to help her push boundaries um, and, and believe in herself. And, um, and that it's a stereotypical role, but it's one that I really have embraced. And um, uh, and then the, the eight year old is. Uh, She's, she's the baby of the family. And I've really, uh, I think like a lot of families, we've had to adjust to the COVID period. For me though, it's been great. Uh, all my kids have developed a passion for video games. And that's one area that I've really been able to help them out. <laughs> and a lot of these, you know, video games get a bad rap, but a lot of these are video games that are like very social. So I'll be playing my board games in one room and my, my daughter playing Fortnite in the next room and having a great time with her friends. Uh, I, I actually think that a lot of these highly social video games have played a very good role in COVID-19. And that's hmm. it's one of the rare areas that, that I'm better than my wife. I'm a much better video game player than my wife. So that's, that's <laughs> some, yeah. to give me some stature in the family. Yeah, yeah, I can relate to having a great wife. My people always say like, "Oh, does your wife work?" Because uh, we have a bunch of kids, and I'm like, "Well, she she's a stay at home mom, but she make no no mistake, she works a lot harder than I do." <laughs> it is. Uh, by the way, one thing like when you and I were kids, I mean, I think I'm older than you, but like managing school was something the kid does. Um, these days, the amount of email. The schools send us, and my wife takes. I sometimes just delete these emails because it's like we get 20 in one day. But it's like you need a private secretary at home just to manage the email. Yeah. And when I was a kid, like 
you could send your kid to school and then think about the kid seven hours later when the kid comes home. That doesn't really happen anymore. Uh, you know, managing programs and kids and driving kids around. Like when I was a kid, you know, if you were a 12 year old with a bike, you got around town on your own. Um, these days, like, you know, my 14 and 15 year old, it's, it's considered normal to drive your 14 and 15 year old around and not let them take public transportation stuff. This is something actually my wife and I do argue about a little bit. I'm like, you know, we, we got to let these kids be a little bit more independent. But uh, as, as well as all her, all the other stuff she does, my wife also does a lot of chauffeuring. Um, but I don't know where she finds the time, but uh, I think uh, I have the same attitude of admiration toward my wife that, that you do toward, toward yours. Yeah. So you're both a, a husband and a father. Um, I'd like to think about this question in, in with regards to both of those roles that you fulfill. So in what ways are you a better husband than three to five years ago? And in what ways are you a better father than three to five years ago? Huh. Husband? So... I'm in my early 50s. I mentioned my, my wife's in her late 40s. Um, I think uh, every every woman goes through menopause differently. But um, even if there's no physical effects of menopause, it, it can be existentially a very difficult period of life for a woman because, um, you know, the knowledge that you're not going to have more children or that you can't have more children, um, you know, that there's definitely a phase shift that that happens and so i've had to be sensitive to that and um i think my sense talking to my peer group is it often comes as a surprise that that women do need some emotional support during that period and i think it varies tremendously from woman to woman but we often hear about men having midlife crises uh and i don't think women have midlife crises in the same way, based on my observation, but they do have, they can have something similar. And I think every man has to learn how to support um, his, his, his wife when and if that happens. And I like to think that I've learned a lot about that. Uh, in terms of being a father, geez, I, uh, I think we learn about that all the time. One thing I've learned just in the last six months is it's a cliche, but having meals together, you learn so much about your kids. Before COVID-19, our family, we might have had two or three dinners together per week. And then as soon as COVID-19 hit, we said, well, one of the things we're going to do, we're not going out to you, obviously. We started having dinner together every night. And I think we hit a string of like 103 dinners or something we had in, together in a row. Wow. Yeah. Which was like, because then eventually my, like, Kids occasionally would go to their friend's house for dinner because the restrictions were loosened, and we became a different kind of family. Um, it was it was a real eye opener. I think we there were things we bonded in a way that we hadn't before, and it's it's not like we just I want I don't want to say that there wasn't any fighting or like that. I mean, kids can fight at dinner, and sometimes it was annoying, but overall it was a great thing, and that's something I never would have pr predicted. That just um, and also driving kids. So say, oh, I'm a chauffeur. There was a guy on my block who gave me a great piece of parenting advice because his kids are about my age. And he said, he told me, he says, I love driving my kids around. And I said, why? He said, because 
they're in the car with you and they're kind of like it's like a captive audience but the thing is yeah. they're not looking at you you're both looking ahead so if they don't feel like talking they don't have to talk like if you're having dinner with someone sometimes you feel pressure to talk and he was saying one thing he loves about driving is if they talk to you it's because they want to talk to you and if they don't talk to you you know that's okay too because you're not looking at each other it's like it's a very subtle artifact of the body language i thought that was really interesting and so now i try and drive now that my kids school has started that you know two or three days a week they go to school two or three days a week is digital learning uh i really i wouldn't say i'm excited to drive in school but i like it i've embraced it so cool. it, sounds, it sounds so corny and traditional like family dinners and driving your kid around to school but those things they're just they're just daily rituals but i think i'd like to think they've made me a better parent yeah there's wisdom in those sort of traditional rituals or whatever yeah, well, so much of human trust, like this comes around to what we we're talking about earlier about cancel culture. One of the reasons cancel culture has accelerated in the last six months is that no one is spending any time together and they're not building up the social trust that comes from being together in the same room. You know, we complain about all this Dilbert stuff at work, like, oh, you know, post-it notes on the office fridge Tupperware and parties for people on their birthday and, you know, the guy taking phone calls in the next cubicle, but like, all that mundane daily stuff is how we build up, you know, the mortar of human relationships, you know, day after day. Uh, and if all we know about from people is, is electronically mediated information, then they just become like a social media presence in our life. And there's no, there's very, there's much less social trust. Like we don't have social trust with the people we meet on Twitter because we don't know them. And when friends and family members start to exist as electronic avatars instead of flesh and blood humans, the social trust dissipates. So even mundane, daily, boring tasks that you do with family, it, it does, it has a social function. Over time, it builds up a sort of uh, level of trust that, that can see you through difficult times. I've, I've become a big believer in that. Awesome. Um, you're... When you're having a bad day, feeling overwhelmed or anxious, or maybe you've just been in the thick of some really heavy topics on Twitter for a long time as part of your profession, like how do you get out of it? How do you how do you get out of having a bad day when you're feeling rough? And, um, you know what's really helped? It's, it sounds so stupid. Is having a dog. Um, I saw that again. This, this is so corny. I saw a uh, saw someone as a bumper sticker. I, I said it said. Be the person your dog thinks you are. <laughs> it's such a such a like cornball thing, but I'm like, you know what? There's sort of wisdom that like my dog right now is right beside me, and she's just like the sweetest creature in the world. She just wants to like be friends with everyone. And when I'm with her, first thing I do physically is you know I, I take her for a walk because you know just good exercise and fresh air just have this naturally positive effect exercise in particular you know it's the advice you always give everyone who's had a bad breakup or got fired or it's just like go out go to the gym just you know natural endorphins mm -hmm. they don't create problems but they help and so you know i'll jog around the block a few times with my dog and it helps and but just looking at her you know this selfless creature who just wants a pat on the head and food and water and loves being with people it kind of shames me into looking on the bright side of things because I'm like, if if she can be 
amused and happy with with what she has in life like i have so much right and and here i'm like i'm getting pissed off because some writer blew a deadline or um you know i don't know i had a fight with with one of my kids or something like like you know i gotta yeah. i gotta get over that um i i really do think my dog i don't know if every dog has this effect on people but uh, my dog is a sort of therapy dog in my life and her upbeat attitude on everything uh, shames me into being a less cantankerous person. <laughs> yeah, dogs are amazing. Yeah, uh, been a lot of uh, human engineered breeding going on, but we have resulted in quite an incredible species of. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, I have to remind myself. It's like this uh, this cuddly furball I have here. I try and remind myself, like, you know, thousands of years ago, <laughs> this used to be a wolf, uh, and. Uh, I think I actually I, someone said that all dogs today are descended from wolves. I don't know if that's true, um, but to the extent it's true, they're descended from some wild animal. And it's crazy to think that because when you look at uh, hugely domestic, like my dog runs away from squirrels, uh, and it's it's, it's <laughs> yeah, I don't would not survive in on the savanna for very long. But uh, in our no. society, she's she has all the evolutionary adaptations necessary to make a great pet. Yeah. Well, Jonathan, I know we are over time. So um, I'll give one last question is uh, about good causes. Is there a, uh, I always like to ask each guest if there's a good cause that you wish more people knew about. Uh, that's a really good question. Um, well, if it's one that's well known that you're particularly passionate about and want to, you know, increase uh, or encourage involvement with. So let me just make sure I got the name right, um, because I hate to uh, send people to wrong. Um, so when I've had money to donate, and some years, some years I've, our family's had a lot of money to donate. Other money, other years not as much. But um, when when we do have discretionary income uh, beyond our, our regular charitable subscriptions. Uh, the one that I uh, have sent money to is called the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria. And the reason I picked that one is a very wonky reason. I was reading a book by a philosopher. Um, his name is, um, oh God, forget forget his name, but he was a utilitarian, meaning that he was always looking for like, what does the most amount of good on a cost-benefit basis, including in the realm of philanthropy. Um, this Princeton guy, whose name is escaping me, and he listed a few charities that, to his mind, this the money that would go to this charity uh, would save the most life on a per-dollar basis. And uh, one of them was the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria. It's www.theglobalfund.org. Uh, and you know he was describing how like sometimes very simple medicinal interventions or something as simple as a malaria net like a, a mosquito net that prevents malaria um can can save a person's life mm -hmm. so um that one uh peter singer is the uh philosopher's name gotcha. um and so that's if there was one charity to mention i would mention that one awesome yeah somehow I think it was yesterday I was wound up on a Google search of which animals kill the most humans per year. And it was mosquitoes. I was like, Oh wow. 
Yeah, so. I think in terms of megafauna, it's someone told me it was hippos, or at least in Africa. Yeah, yeah more than lions for sure, because they're pretty territorial and dangerous around water, and they can move on land too. I, they're shockingly fast, and I mean, this is a, we're on a tangent here, but I think like if you get between them and the water, they freak out because that's kind of their safety valve. And um, yeah, mm-hmm. but, it, but but the number of people they kill is a rounding error compared to what mosquitoes uh, kill through mosquito-borne diseases. So um, fortunately, we're, we're not many people die of those diseases in North America, but uh, some parts of the world, it's, it's a huge problem. Yeah, it was like 500,000, like over 500,000 people a year. Uh, yeah. You know, so I was like, how? Wow, that's incredible. And a lot so, of that could be prevented through fairly fairly simple and cheap interventions, uh, yeah, which is why I mentioned that charity. Yeah, credit to you for getting some nets out there and, and all the other things that they're working on. So, um, hey, is there anything we um, we should have covered that we, we haven't? No, this is a wide-ranging interview. Admirably wide-ranging interview. Uh, uh, and uh, I appreciate your interest about all this stuff. It's been fun to talk. Hey, thank you, man. Uh, good to have you on the show. And for those who are looking for more Jonathan K in their life, where can they find you and learn more? Uh, you know what? If you go to um, look up Jonathan K, Google Jonathan K and Colette, uh, that's one way. Or just uh, my Twitter address is John K J O N K A Y. Um, I got I got a good Twitter address, and in, That's my, solid. in my profile it has a, a link to my my website. Um, which and by the way, my website is basically just articles and stuff. If if you want to see pictures of my dog, you can also find them on Facebook and stuff. I <laughs> actually I strongly suggest them. I have a super cute dog, and uh, if you're not interested in all the culture war stuff, just come for the dog pictures. <laughs> yeah, dogs are amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hey, thanks again, man. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Talk soon. Hey, thanks for listening. If you like the show, please send me a note on LinkedIn. It makes me smile every time. And I also want to say that your constructive criticism is strongly encouraged. If notes aren't your thing, it'd be great to have you subscribe, share the show with a friend, or write a review of the show in your podcasting platform so that awesome strangers who don't know either of us can be more likely to find the show. Thanks again, and I hope you have a great day.